Congratulations. That's a big deal. The, the uh, pastors of our church and the deacons are um, ordaining them this morning. And it's a very important part of their ministry. So make sure you get a chance to say the congratulations to them. Um, so because he wasn't going to be here, Mike asked if I would come speak this morning. I told him, absolutely, I'd, I'd love to have the opportunity to, to teach again. I like to, to get up here every now and then and share what God has kind of laid on my heart. And then when he told me specifically the passage he wanted me to cover this morning, I got real excited because what we're going to talk about this morning is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, and as you guys know, we've been talking about the Exodus over the last few weeks, and he asked me to cover the 10th plague, which is the last plague that uh, God places in judgment over Egypt to allow Israel to come out of Egypt and to start their way towards the promised land that God had promised to give them. Um, <clears throat> but I think as cool as this story is, and as important as it is uh, it, to the Jewish religion and everything, as Christians, I think we all don't always see how pivotal this this passage of scripture is. In fact, I believe this to be one of the most profound and most pivotal passages in all of scripture because it ties in a lot of things between the Old Testament and the New Testament that are very important. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to share that with you this morning. Now, Yossi Ginsberg, okay, he was an Adra a young Israeli adventurer in 1981. Uh, he decided that he didn't want to pursue college to the disdain of his parents and he decided that he wanted to go experience life in some pretty unique ways. He wanted to travel all over the world. He wanted to go to some of the most remote corners of the planet and get to have these unique experiences. And some of you might be looking on the screen and say, is that Harry Potter with a beard? And absolutely, that is. Um, it is Daniel Ratcliffe. He actually plays Yossi Ginsberg in the movie Jungle, which was actually named after the book. He wrote a book about his experiences in the jungle. And I just wanted to share real quick with you. I actually watched this movie recently. And uh, what ends up happening is he finds himself in Bolivia, which is in South America. Okay. And there's jungle all around. And he's wanting to have this exciting experiences in the jungle of Bolivia. And he comes across two other adventurers about his age wanting to do the same thing. A, a guy from Sweden named Marcus and a guy from the United States named Kevin. And so they decide they're going to go deep into the jungle. They've, they've got this guy named Carl that's going to guide them into the deepest, most remote parts of the Bolivian jungle to find a lost tribe of people that hardly anybody is, knows about. And they're hoping to have this ex, ex, exotic, adventurous jungle experience and also maybe hoping to get some ancient ruins and those kinds of things. So they're really excited about this. Well, without getting to all the details of the movie, ultimately what ends up, ends up happening is the group ends up, things go bad and they get separated. Okay, and Yossi himself finds himself by himself in the middle of the jungle. Now, here's what you have to understand about the jungle. Most people aren't going to live 24 to 48 hours on their own out in the middle of the jungle. Okay, so he knows he's in trouble. And some of the things that he, he goes through, things really start to fall apart. First of all, his raft, he made a raft. He was trying to get out with the raft. He goes through rapids, hits rocks. He gets thrown from the raft and is carried down river, hits his head on a rock, okay, pretty much knocks him out, almost drowns. He wakes up just in time to surface the water and make it to land, right? Gashed his head wide open. Um, he su suffers dehydration because it's so hot in the, <clears throat> the jungle and the rainforest there. He actually ends up getting a parasite in his wound and has to cut it out with a stick and pulls a worm out of his head, okay? I know, don't tell your parents you learned about this this morning, 
but he almost gets eaten by a jaguar. He goes to climb a tree in order to get a better vantage point to find his way out of the jungle, and there's a snake right there, and a snake comes at him. He gets bitten by thousands of red ants. Um, he and starts to hallucinate and starts to imagine that his friends are coming to rescue him <clears throat> and actually imagines that he's walking through the jungle with another person most of the time, and that person's not even real, okay? So he's going through this horrible experience. He's losing weight. Everything is hopeless for him. So I said most people don't live more than 24 to 48 hours in the wilderness. Well, he's several weeks been out there, and he's still not found his way back home. Well, one of the guys made his way back to civilization, Kevin. And <clears throat> Kevin was trying to get somebody to go with him to go find Yossi. And Kevin couldn't get anybody that'd be willing to do it. Uh, everybody says, a gringo in the, des in the jungle by himself is dead. Give it up. There's, he doesn't have a chance. Nobody would be willing to risk it. He finally finds a man that makes boats. He handcrafts boats to be willing to take him upriver <clears throat> to see if they could find Yossi. <clears throat> Excuse me. Getting choked up? No. Um, he does find Yossi. After 19 days, okay, Yossi, who was basically just laying over a log in the beach, they actually land on the beach, and they're walking around. Yossi doesn't even know. They're within yards of him, and he's laying behind this log ready to die, and they actually leave, and Yossi hears them leaving, and he gets up just enough as they're going away, and he crawls, and he tries to put his hands up, and he stands up finally. And right before they turn the corner, they see Yossi standing up on the beach. And they turn around, and they rescue him. Yossi was in the jungle for 19 days in what he thought was an eternity. <clears throat> it was a hopeless situation, something that he could not get himself out of. Okay, That is where the people of Israel find themselves in when we get to the book of Exodus. Okay, for 400 years, actually more than 400 years, they have been in Egypt, and for most of that time, they have been slaves. Okay, it had been a hopeless situation. I mean, after being slaves for that many years, you're kind of thinking, well, nothing's really going to change. They were crying out to God, nothing was happening, right? So they're in this hopeless situation that they cannot get themselves out of until God sends Moses and Aaron, right? And so Mike's been talking about over the last few weeks about that experience. And last two, what, two weeks ago, Mike mentioned those first nine plagues, right? God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh. And Moses basically goes to Pharaoh. He says, God's told me to come to you that you need to let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh's going, well, you're crazy. This is all the slave labor that's allowing me to build my great cities and the great pyramids. I'm not going to let these people go. You're out of your mind. Get out, get, leave me, go away. And so he does. And of course, we know that each of those nine plagues, right, that, that God brings in judgment on Egypt for enslaving his people um, was a, a consequence because Pharaoh would refuse to let Israel go, all right? And we also talked about, I don't know if you remember, but Mike said each of those judgments, when it was, you remember what some of them were, right? Water turned to blood, boils all over their body, frogs everywhere, okay, uh, flies, locusts hail and fire from heaven that destroyed crops and livestock. There was a lot of horrible experiences that the Egyptian people went through. And each one of those plagues was attack against one or more of the different Egyptian gods. Now, we sit there and go, well, there is no Egyptian gods. That's true. But in the eyes of the Egyptians, there were Egyptian gods. And what that told the Egyptians, the fact that 
the God of Israel was able to do all of those things against their gods said that the God of Israel was stronger than the gods of Egypt. So the people of Egypt <clears throat> were very much afraid of the God of Israel and of Moses and the people of Israel at this point, okay? But they're still slaves. They're still slaves when we get to this part. And so now we're going to get to the 10th plague. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go through this passage. I'm going to try and hit the highlights. We're in Exodus chapter 11 and chapter 12. If you want to be reading with us, I'll have some of the verses up on the screen up here. And we're going to talk about kind of what happens in these two chapters. And then we're going to see how do these chapters apply to our lives as Christians today. Okay, so let's first of all, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 11. This is the 10th plague. Okay, and I'm going to read all of chapter 11 because it's only 10 verses long. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of their neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And when he went out from Pharaoh, and then he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So, chapter 11 is Moses giving fair warning to Pharaoh. Okay, he's saying, look, these nine plagues have happened. He's like, look, you need to let Israel go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. I'm not going to let him go. And he says, okay, well, I need you to understand this last judgment, this is going to be the worst one. All the firstborn in Egypt are going to die if you don't let them go. And still Pharaoh refuses to let them go. Okay. Now there's a few things I want to point out to you from this first chapter that we're going over. First of all, notice this. God asks the Israelites to ask the Egyptians for provisions so they can leave. Did you see that in there? God gives them specific directions to ask their neighbors. They're slaves, okay? They've been slaves to the Egyptians for hundreds of years, and they're supposed to go to the homes of the Egyptians and ask them for gold and silver. Now, how many times do you think people, if your slave comes up to you, you're going to be giving them your stuff? Doesn't happen very often. But that's exactly what happens, okay? They give them their gold. They give them the silver. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. They give them all the provisions they need. I think it's really interesting that God does this. Israel's been slaves for a long time. They don't have what it takes to get through to the promised land on their own through the wilderness. They need stuff. So God's providing it for them. And the Egyptians are going to willingly give it to them. It says that 
the Egyptians, the Israelites, and Moses found favor in the eyes of the Egyptian people. Not because they loved the Israelites, but because, we, as we mentioned before, they feared Yahweh. They feared the God of Israel. And they're like, okay, if we can do anything to take these judgments away from us, we believe he's powerful. So if you want our gold or our silver, we're going to give it to you. Okay? They're giving all this stuff to these slaves. So that's a real interesting point to realize. And then secondly is this. <clears throat> all the firstborn were going to die. I want to talk about what does that mean, all the firstborn is going to die. Because people look at this, and this seems like kind of a harsh judgment, but you got to understand who God is and what, what Egypt has represented and what Egypt has done to Israel for hundreds of years. When we're talking about all the firstborn dying, we're not just talking about babies. We're talking about anybody that was ever a firstborn in their family would be dying, okay? So take me, for example, okay? If I was an Egyptian, okay, and I was living during this time under this judgment, first of all, I would die because I was the firstborn from my parents. And then my oldest son, Landon, would die because he was the firstborn from me and Stacy. okay? So it's the firstborn, and it wasn't just the aristocracy. It wasn't just the leaders of Egypt. It was everybody in Egypt. It was the slaves in Egypt, okay? And it also included the cattle and the livestock. So if you had a cow and your cow was the firstborn of its parents, it was going to die as well, okay? So I think we need to understand the huge extent of this plague and what it really meant, okay? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, okay? So God gives fair warning, okay? After this, then Moses goes straight to the Israelites. And here's something I want you to realize that's different than everything else that we've seen so far when we're talking about the 10 plagues. All of the first nine plagues, okay, God passed judgment on Egypt and Israel was protected, okay? Israel did not get the boils, okay? Their crops and their livestock were not affected by the hail and the fire. They did not experience the, the, the plague of darkness, they didn't have frogs overcoming their house and lose all this stuff just like the Egyptians did. God just brought that on the Egyptian people. But in the 10th plague, Israel is giving specific instructions, something that they must do in order to receive God's protection this time. It's really unique because they didn't have to do anything else. They just were the people of Israel before, and they were automatically protected. But God says, no, I'm going to give you some steps that you must follow. And if you follow these steps, you will not receive the judgment of the death of the firstborn that I'm going to bring on Egypt, okay? And so that's when we talk about the Passover. So God tells Moses to tell the people, this is what you're going to tell them. I'm just going to summarize part of chapter 12 here. He says, what you're going to tell them to do is each family, okay, on the 10th day of the month, and by the way, God tells them, this, is, this month right now is going to be your religious new year. This is going to become the new year. This, things are starting new. This is a new step in the life of the people of Israel and their worship of Yahweh. He's on the 10th of the month, you're going to pick a lamb out of your flock. And it needs to be a lamb that is perfect without blemish. That means no spots. It can't be lame. It can't be sick. It can't be weak. <clears throat> okay? It had to be a year old. All right? They had to take that away from the rest of the flock and set it aside for four days. And on the 14th day, and I think the assumption for that is to make sure it's not sick, that it did not get any disease or illness from the rest of the flock. And if on the 14th day they were still healthy and they were still without blemish, they were to kill the lamb, okay? They then would take hyssop branches. <clears throat> they were told to dip the blood, uh, dip the branches into the blood of the lamb. 
And then they would have to paint that blood on their doorposts and the lintel. So on the two sides and the top of their door, they had to put the blood, okay? Then they were to go inside and shut the door and take the following steps. They were required to roast the lamb whole. They didn't gut it. They didn't remove the brains. They put the whole thing in there and had to cook it and roast it whole. They were not allowed to boil it. They were not allowed to eat it raw. They were not allowed to cook it in any other way, okay? They had to cook the entire lamb. If one lamb was too much for a family, if it was a small family, okay, they had to invite another family, and that lamb would serve as a Passover lamb for both families, but they had to eat all of that lamb, okay? If all of it, all of it, insides, outsides, all of it. If anything was left over after they had eaten, they had to burn it up with fire. It had to be completely consumed in the fire before judgment came. They also were supposed to eat this with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Okay? And God says, if you do that and if you paint on the doorpost, oh, and he also gives them a specific way to eat it. You're going to eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on, and with your staff in your hand. And you're like, what in the world? It's a dress code for the Passover. Yeah, because you know what God was going to do? In the middle of the night, you're leaving. This is going to happen. I'm going to protect you. And the minute it happens, in the middle of the night, you're leaving. You need to be ready to go. That's why it was unleavened bread, by the way. Does anybody want to know what unleavened bread is? All right, who in here has had communion before? That little piece of styrofoam that you eat? That's unleavened bread. Great tasting stuff, isn't it? Right? Here's why they did unleavened bread. Okay? Leaven is yeast. Okay? And some of you guys probably know this. Some of you may not. But yeast is what gives bread that nice, wonderful fluffiness. Like when it rises, you put it in the oven and it rises and gets all big and bubbly. And you can put that big old slab of butter on top and eat it. Oh, it's, when it's warm. Awesome. Right? If you've ever tried to make... Um, Bread from scratch, though, by putting yeast in, what you got to do is you got to let the yeast sit for days or weeks, okay? And then you, you, you make that batch, okay? They didn't have time for that. So God said, this is going to be unleavened bread. You're going just, just to cook it and go, right? And you're going to take it with you. So that's why it was unleavened bread. Um, so th this is what they were supposed to do. They had to be ready. And God says, if you do these things, then when I come at midnight, and I'm going to pass through the entire land of Egypt. If I see the blood of that lamb on your doorpost, I'm going to pass over. That's why it's called Passover. I'm going to pass over your house, and I'm going to go to the next house. And, that house and, and, and anyone that does not have that blood is going to experience the death of the firstborn in that home. Okay? So that is where the idea of Passover comes from. And by the way, does anybody remember what Jesus did before the night before he died? What were they doing? Yeah, they were celebrating the Passover. That's what the Last Supper was. When we celebrate communion, that's why we do the unleavened bread and the, the grape juice that represents the wine, because that's part of what they were supposed to do as well, okay? So they were celebrating Passover. It wasn't called the Last Supper until after Jesus died, because it was his Last Supper, okay? So they were celebrating Passover as well. This was supposed to be something that they would implement for the rest of their history, 
God tells him in verse 14, this is a day that will be a memorial day for you. You're going to, every year, you're going to do this. Every year on the 10th day of the first month, you're going to take that lamb out. On the fourth day, you're going to sacrifice it. You're going through all these steps again to remember that I'm going to save you out of Egypt. You're going to use this to remember of God's salvation and carrying you out of Egypt. You're no longer going to be slaves anymore, and you're going to be my people. Okay? So he not only told them to do this this time, they were to do this every year after that. Okay? <clears throat> so Israel does exactly what God tells them to do. And then death comes. So I'm just going to read this passage for you. It's just a few verses in chapters 29 through uh, chapter 12, 29 through 36. And it says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up and go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, thus they plundered the Egyptians. They, it, when you hear the word plundered, what do you think of? What does plundered mean? Yeah, to take, you take something from somebody, but usually like when you plunder, like you take all of it, or you take the majority of it, most of it, right? When pirates would, would go and, and capture a ship, they would plunder the ship. They would take all its treasure, all its supplies, everything that they had, okay? Now, do I think the, Egypt, the Israelites took every single thing that the Egyptians had? No but it's expressing the significance of the amount of stuff that they took out with them. Israel left. They were slaves the day before. They walked out wealthier than they had ever been. Okay, they probably had livestocks, livestocks, livestock, clothing, gold, jewelry, provisions that they were going to need to make it out of this. Okay, so they plundered the Egyptians. Here's the other thing that's significant. It says every house... Every house in the land of Egypt had a dead body in it, at least one. That's a lot of people. Think about it. If we woke up this morning and every house in Wilson, North Carolina, woke up and somebody had died, think about what would be going through people's minds. What would that be like? People would be horrified. People would be thinking it's the end of the world, wondering what is going on, right? Right? Wilson's not that big a town, though, compared to the whole entire land of Egypt. We're talking probably over the whole land of Egypt, millions of people dead in one night all of a sudden. That's this very, very scary situation, okay? Not only that, the livestock is also dead. So God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He said, if you don't do these, if you don't let my people go, this is the judgment that you're going to face, okay? So God brings to fruition just exactly what he says. Now, let me... And thus, because of all that, 
Israel now is exiting out of Egypt. The exodus, that's what exodus means, is a mass leaving, right? A lot of people coming out at one time, okay? And this is just an old uh, rendition of maybe the the exodus of the people of, of Israel leaving Egypt, okay? Let me ask you this. How many people do you think, how many Israelites came out of Egypt? Throw a number out there. How many? Five million? Okay, that might be a little high. What do you think? Five million? I like that number, huh? Half a million, okay. So the Bible tells us that it was 600,000 men, not counting the women and children. Normally in the Old Testament, when we see men referenced like that for the population of a tribe or of a nation, most of the time they're talking about the able-bodied fighting men that are of age to fight, right? So it may not even mean all of the men, but let's assume 600,000 is all of the men. If you start adding women and children, you could probably very easily double that number, which means you're probably looking at 1.2 million people walking out. At least a million. We're not talking about a few hundred people. Okay, we're talking about a massive amount of people walking out in the middle of the night. And just imagine, that's a lot of labor to the Egyptians. That was a big deal, okay? So it's not just this little squad of a handful of people. It is a massive amount of people that are leaving Egypt right now, okay? So God does exactly what he said he's going to do. Cool, Tony, this is a neat story. I've heard this before. So what is the significance of this story? I told you earlier that this is probably one of the most pivotal passages in the entire Bible. There's several of them throughout Scripture, but this is a very significant one. Okay, and the thing I want you to understand is that this specific passage about the, the God saving his people from the plague of the 10th board and them coming out of Egypt is God foreshadowing what his plan of salvation is going to be. Okay, God has given a clue to Israel and to all mankind his plan of salvation. It is a picture. It's, when, when you study scripture, They'll say it's a type of salvation, which means it represents the picture of salvation that Jesus is going to do for us on the cross. And some people go, I'm not sure. How can you say that? Well, there's a lot of things that connect those two together. Okay. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, the writers in the New Testament constantly refer to the Exodus and connected it to the salvation that Christ has done for us. But let's look at some of the similarities and talk through it a little bit. Number one, The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were in a hopeless situation that they could not get themselves out of. Okay? God had to deliver them. We are slaves to sin. Every single one of us in here has done something wrong. I have. We've said wrong things. We've disobeyed our parents or what God wants us to do. All right? We've taken advantage of other people. We've lied. Who knows? All those things, when we don't do the right thing, that's called sin. And once you sin, once sin enters your life, you you're our slave to sin. Your, your body always kind of wants to rebel against God. You, you have a natural tendency to want to do what's selfish for you and not necessarily beneficial to everybody else. We become slaves to sin, and it's something that we can't get ourselves out of, right? The Egyptians couldn't get themselves out of Egypt. We can't get ourselves out of sin, okay? Then we got the Passover lamb. Now, this, to me, this is the cool part. Okay, so what did the Israelites have to do? 
They had to take that perfect lamb that was without blemish. They had to kill it, right? That lamb didn't do anything, right? It's completely innocent. But they, they had to kill it and they had to put that blood. And only those who put the blood on the door were going to be bad, passed over from God's judgment, right? Well, John the Baptist, when Jesus comes to be baptized, he, in John 1.29, he makes a statement. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Okay, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. What is John talking about? Was Jesus a lamb? No. He is prophetically connecting Jesus Christ all the way back to the Exodus. He's saying, just like that Passover lamb that protected you from God's wrath and judgment and brought you out and you became his people, so this man is going to be your Passover lamb. And he's going through his shed blood, your sins are going to be forgiven. That's what he's talking. That's why John said the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. In fact, after this passage in the Old Testament, this idea of this sacrificial lamb, the Messiah being this lamb, kind of being merged together, starts popping up in Isaiah and all throughout the prophets. Okay? So it's a very important thing to understand. This isn't just a coincidental connection between the Passover and Exodus and what Jesus did for us. It's very intentional. Okay? We cannot... God had to do something to deliver us from our sins. So he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for us. And remember, what kind of lamb did it have to be? What kind of lamb did it have to be when they, when they, they slaughtered and put it on the doorpost? Do what? It had to be perfect. It had to be perfect without blemish, right? That's why Jesus had to be the one to die. That's why no person could be that person, because we're all imperfect. We're all full of sin, but Jesus wasn't. He was completely innocent, just like that lamb was innocent, didn't do anything wrong. Jesus had no wrong within him. He was the perfect sacrifice. That's the only way it would meet God's requirements to save us from our sin. I also think it's kind of interesting that they celebrate Passover before God delivers them out of Egypt, and then Jesus celebrates Passover with his apostles before he dies for us. Jesus was ministering for three years. This is the only time we hear him celebrating the Passover. Now, he celebrated it probably all three years because he was a very faithful Jew, right? But this one is the one that the, the apostles, when they wrote the Gospels, they wanted to focus on because they knew that what Jesus is saying here, just like the people celebrated Passover before God delivered them, I'm doing this as a memorial to let you know what I am about to do for you, okay? Deep connection between the two. That's what the Last Supper was really all about. Jesus is kind of showing the connection between this and what God had done in the past. So we see that ultimately Israel was protected from death and was delivered out of Egypt, right? Because of what God did for them. We are protected from spiritual death and delivered out of sin because of what Jesus did for us, all right? So you guys see those connections. You see how this whole passage in the Old Testament is not just a neat story. It's God setting the stage for what had to take place for all of us. It's he putting a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These two events took place 1,500 years apart. And they're almost, they're, they're beautiful descriptions of each other because God was connecting all of that together. And so you might be saying, well, Tony, okay, that's cool. The, the passage here in Exodus reminds us that what Jesus was going to do 
So what does that mean? how does that apply to us today? Well, because of that, I wanted to make that connection because that also means I think there's some other things about our salvation that we can learn from the passage in Exodus that I think we sometimes take for granted today. If it's a type of salvation for what Jesus would do for us, it will help us to under, better understand our salvation of what Jesus did for us. Okay, so there's two points I want you to come away with this morning. Okay, we're good on time. Two primary points I want you to get, okay? The first one is this. God saves his people. Now, you might be going, oh, that's profound. Of course he saves his people. Now, I want you to understand, God saves his people. Now, why am I emphasizing that in such a way? Remember what I said when it came to this plague. This is the only one, the only one in which Israel had to do something to receive God's protection. Didn't mean they were earning his protection, but that he required something of them. Why? I want you to think about it to yourselves for a minute. Why now, after all the nine plagues goes by, he hasn't required anything of Israel? But on this last one, he's going to require something of them. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because this is the one that really counts. This is one. God knew he wasn't going to be delivering anything until this last one. And God wanted his people to trust him, to put their faith in him, to know that he was going to be their deliverer. It wasn't about them. It was about what he was going to do for them. But he wanted them to trust him. So he gave them something to do to show that they trusted him. So now I want to ask you a question to think about as well. What do you think would have happened if an Israelite family didn't follow through on the Passover? What would happen if an Israelite family didn't take that blood and hiss it and paint it on the doorpost? they would have experienced the death of the firstborn. Scripture kind of makes it clear because God says, if you do this, I will pass over you. The direct opposite of that is if you don't, I'm not. Okay? Hear me on this. This is critical. Israel was not saved from the death of the firstborn because they were Israel. Israel was saved because they trusted in God and they followed him and they obeyed him and did what he wanted them to do. Not because they were just Israel. Applying that today, growing up in a Christian home doesn't make me a Christian. Being born in the United States where we have a Christian culture doesn't mean I'm a child of God. Okay? God still asks us to do something. He asks us to choose him. He asks us to put our faith in him and say, hey, Lord, I don't know what you're up to, but I believe in this Jesus that you sent to die on the cross for my sins. I believe that what he did takes all my sins away. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. Me choosing you isn't earning anything. It's me reaching out to a hand that's saving me from drowning that's holding out for me. I got to reach it. I got to grab it so he can pull me out. I'm not pulling myself out. 
He's pulling me out, but I've got to reach for it. Being a Christian is not a passive thing that automatically is imbued on us because we have Christian parents. We all, at some point, have to choose to reach out and grab that hand. That is something very important for us to understand from this passage, and that is something we can see by looking back at this picture of the Exodus. God saves his people, those people who are going to trust in him, who are going to have faith in him, who are going to follow him and understand. doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean you don't disobey sometimes. It doesn't mean you don't make wrong decisions. But it does mean that you're going to choose to try with every part of your being as best you can to try to do the best you can to pursue him. Okay? God saves his people. The second one is this. And this is one that we don't understand. Our salvation in Christ is immediate. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is a salvation that is active right this minute. If you're a child of God, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have salvation right now. Now, what do, what do I mean by that? Well, I think, unfortunately, as the church, and I mean not peace church, I'm talking about the body of Christ, we've kind of done salvation a little bit of a disservice. We've kind of said, salvation is about you receiving Jesus, accept him as your Lord and Savior, try to do your best to pursue your life for him, and just wait for when you get saved, when either you die or he comes back for you. Like, like it's, this, it's like, get saved and wait. That we don't really experience salvation until that day when we're with him forever and eternity. But that's really not the picture of salvation. That's part of it. But that's only part of it. Let me ask you this. The Israelites, once they did what they were supposed to in Passover and the, God passes over them and they come out of Egypt, did their relationship with God stop right then? No. Did they wait to experience God for, you know, 30, 40 years later? No. Let me tell you what happens after this. And Mike's going to talk about this next week. They, they take off in the middle of the night, just like we talked about. Pharaoh's going to come after them. God's going to miraculously protect them. They're going to cross over the Red Sea miraculously. They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and God is going to provide them with manna and quail every single day so they have plenty to eat. Then they're going to cross over the Jordan miraculously again and walk in to take over the land of Canaan. The first city they're going to come to is Jericho. Anybody remember what happens in Jericho? The walls come tumbling down. Did Israel knock the walls down? No, God did. God was actively, they had an active relationship with their God. And God was doing stuff all the time. And what I want us to understand and take away from this is that our salvation is active right now. We experience an immediacy to our salvation. When you become saved, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to give in to those sins. You have freedom in Christ right now. You can avoid those temptations. You can choose to walk away from those things. Is it easy? Not necessarily. Are you going to sometimes mess up? Yeah, sure. But that's something you can't do when you don't have Christ. That's part of the salvation experience right now. You get to have a relationship with Christ right now, something you didn't have before. As Christians, we go through sickness, death, trials, tribulations. We suffer too, but we can have peace when we go through those things that when we don't have Christ, we, won't, we wouldn't have. That's salvation. God is saving you from a life without him. You get to be saved and have a life with him. So our salvation is something that is working in our life 
right now. We get to experience God's call in our life, his direction. We get to see him work in amazing ways. That is part of salvation. It's not just waiting for one day. It changes our lives right now. We live differently. We have different experiences. We are empowered by God. And that is something I want you to understand. Take that away. Find power of God in your life. Look around you. Yeah, you might be having a rough week at school, a rough day at school or at work or whatever it may be that you're going through. But know what? Know that you've got God with you and see what he wants you to do. Experience God's salvation as an active living thing that's going on in your life right now, not something that's going to happen one day. Now, in closing, and, and, and I'm going to finish up here, if anything I said today doesn't make sense, if, if you're not sure what I mean when I'm talking about what Jesus did for us or, or you got some questions of what I've mentioned about this idea of salvation and Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, don't leave out of here without asking a question. Come see me. Come see any of the adults in this room. They'd love to have the opportunity to explain that to you so that you can experience that act of salvation right now and get to experience being one of his people, okay? All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and then we're going to go to the next service.